So Luke 24 verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who has, does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had been visions of angels who had said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophet has spoken. Did you not did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Please keep your Bible open at Luke 24, the Bible reading that was just read to us. Um, Today we come to the last episode of our series on Luke's Gospel and it's an episode that's unique to him, a story only found in his Gospel and one of his great stories. It's a story of a road trip as was said to us earlier. Now, I don't know whether you've been on many road trips before. Our family has had some memorable ones, like uh, one time when we were travelling from Adelaide to Sydney at Christmas time, and our van broke down 50 kilometres short of Hay on the Hay Plain in the middle of nowhere with no mobile coverage of any system, Telstra or anything else. It was memorable indeed, I can tell you about the details of that sometime, not right now. So our passage today is really about a road trip, this time just a walking one. Two people travelling from Jerusalem to a town called uh, Emmaus. They're part of the disciple group um, that Luke refers to at the end of chapter 23, um, who've been meeting after the crucifixion. And for those two people, this road trip would certainly turn out to be what I've called a road trip to remember. 
right? One going on. Yes, road trip to remember. Um, but it's remembering and it's important uh, because it brings together all the expectations of God's plan. God's plan of salvation for Israel and indeed what turns out to be all people. And hence uh, the subtitle I've given it if you're looking at the outline on the hub or that sort of thing, the realisation of hope. Now, this story has just about everything a good story has, really. It's got drama, sorrow, perplexity, astonishment and excitement. It begins, however, (coughs) with a tone of deep disappointment. The disappointment that Jesus' followers must have felt um, because of the crucifixion of Jesus. It begins, you see, with a hope dismayed. In verses 16, 13 to 16, it tells us that two people, we only know the name of one, Cleopas, were walking along the road to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, when the now resurrected Jesus joins them. But they're prevented from recognising him, and Jesus asked them what they were discussing. Now, that seems like a fair enough question. When you join someone, what are they discussing? But it certainly wasn't a fair enough question as far as the disciples were concerned at this time because there was only one thing that had been the topic of conversation through the whole town. Only one thing. And that, of course, uh, was Jesus' crucifixion. It was among his followers, though, the devastation that that had caused them. It's not hard to see how devastated Jesus' disciples must have felt after the crucifixion. Imagine for a moment if you'd been there at this time. The coming of the Messiah had been an increasing expectation over the last century or so. Then John the Baptist turns up unique figure in himself, but he's not the Messiah, but he announces the coming of the Messiah. Finally, Jesus appears on the scene himself and he's a person like no one has ever seen before in history. Verse 19 describes him as powerful in word and deed. You see, it was not only what he did, healed the sick, controlled the natural elements, the wind and the waves raised people back to life. It was the way he taught and the authority with which he taught as well and what he said. Surely this man was the Messiah. Surely this man would redeem Israel and fulfil all the prophets had said in the Old Testament. But then in a moment, he's handed over to the chief priests and the Romans and is crucified, even though Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader and governor, himself recognised that Jesus had done no wrong. No wonder, as verse 17 says, they were downcast. Surely a massive understatement, really. It must have been the talk of the whole town, what had happened to Jesus, So the two travellers can't believe that Jesus doesn't know anything about it or appears not to know anything about it. 
I presume really they must have been a little embarrassed later on when they realised who Jesus was and they'd effectively accused him of being clueless about what had gone on. And yet this great loss of hope, this disappointment, this dismay is not quite final, is it? The true travellers note that there have been some perplexing reports about Jesus being alive again. And so the story moves on from a hope dismayed to a hope rediscovered. In verses 22 to 31, Luke relates three elements of the renewal of the hope that Jesus was indeed the longed-for Messiah. The first is that the tomb is found empty. In verses 22 to 24 we read, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. No body, only some angels saying the weirdest thing that Jesus was alive. The travellers, you see, found this report amazing. Why? Well, because the last thing, the last thing anybody expected was a resurrection. One of the things always that continues to give credibility to the account of Jesus' resurrection is that not one of his disciples expected such a thing even though Jesus had spoken to them several times over the three years he was with them. And one of the reasons they didn't expect such a thing to happen was a failure to understand the Old Testament properly. They failed to understand the necessity of the Messiah's suffering. So in verse 25, He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures, in all the scriptures concerning himself. The indications that the Messiah would suffer before and rising to glory were all there. The prophets had spoken about that long ago. And Luke in his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, um, will refer to a number of these passages that actually show that and explain that that was God's intention um, all along. But for the Jews, that God's Messiah could suffer and die was utterly inconceivable. He's the Messiah. How could he possibly suffer and die? And that is partly because they saw redemption in political terms, a putting down of the Romans and a re-establishing of the land of Israel as their possession. As one writer so aptly states, they had been seeing the Old Testament as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story 
of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Through, in particular, the suffering which would take place on himself by Israel's, or on itself, by Israel's representative, the Messiah. And friends, is that not still the continuing problem today? Israel, you see, thought they could be redeemed simply through the appearance of a conquering hero to overthrow Israel's enemies. But the real problem was Israel's continued sin and rebellion against a holy God. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament should have taught them that the blood of bulls and goats in the end could not accomplish the payment on our behalf of the just penalty for sin. Only human sacrifice could do that and only one of the magnitude that was sufficient to cover the sin of the whole world. Only the sacrifice of the human son of God could accomplish what Israel had hoped for. And it's no different today. No amount of good works can ever cover, can ever cover over the tendency for sin and rebellion in every human being. Nothing can ever overcome the tendency from the day we're born to want to do our own thing or to do things my way rather than God's way. No one can be redeemed and come into God's family, inherit eternal life, unless they give up their human pride and confess their sinfulness before God. Only then can a person be forgiven by God because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is applied by God to their sin. See, these travellers had hoped Jesus was God's redeemer. They thought the crucifixion destroyed that hope. In fact, the great irony at this point of the story is that the crucifixion was the very means by which God secured that hope for his people. And so it does also today for anyone who turns to God and asks forgiveness because of his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. This is what Jesus went on to explain to the travellers in verse 27, from Moses through the prophets, the necessity of the Messiah's suffering. So there was the empty tomb. Then there's an understanding of the scriptures. The final element in the rediscovery of Israel's hope is the revelation of Jesus himself. Verses 28 to 31. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared 
from their sight. Now up to this point, they had been prevented by God from recognising Jesus. Actually, I'm not sure they would have anyway, given their devastation about the crucifixion and the fact has already noted that the last thing they expected was to see Jesus alive again. But Luke makes it clear that the recognition of who Jesus really is is always the work of God's grace rather than some ingenuity of the human heart. The time has come, however, for the final part of this rediscovery of hope to be put in place. So it is that at that evening meal, at the breaking of the bread, God opens their eyes. They recognise Jesus and he is immediately taken from their sight. Now some have drawn parallels, of course, here to the Lord's Supper, but I don't think that that's Luke's intention here yet. Meals were important in the ancient world. They were a place of fellowship and the gathering of God's family. And Luke's gospel is a gospel of meals, friends. More than any other gospel, he celebrates meals. Meal times were important. Jesus was present at many where important things were said and taught by him. It's no surprise then that Jesus should be revealed to these two disciples at a meal in the everyday circumstances of life. The effect, however, is dramatic. The dismay they displayed when Jesus met, when he met them, turns rather excitedly into delight. Hope has moved from dismay to rediscovery and now finally to hope assured. In verse 33 we read, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, It's true, the Lord has risen. And he's appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. That hope, you see, stated earlier in verse 21, which I think is really a key verse in this whole story, that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel was not misplaced at all. It had been true all along. But the method by which that would come about had been totally misunderstood. Here, you see, we see the assurance of hope in two ways and both are just as necessary today as they were back then. The assurance of hope, first of all, rests on the testimony of the scriptures. As we noticed in verse 25 to 27, Jesus took time to explain, time to explain the message of the scriptures about himself and particularly the necessity of his suffering as Israel's Messiah and indeed saviour of the world. The assurance of hope, then and now, rests first and foremost on the understanding of the message of the scriptures, about human sinfulness and rebellion, about God's holiness, the just penalty that must be paid, the substitutionary payment made by Jesus on our behalf. And the coming to God in repentance and faith 
that will make that hope a reality in your life and for eternity. But the scriptures by themselves are not enough. I've known scholars of the Bible who are honest enough to recognise these basics of the biblical message but have simply chosen not to believe it. They see it as no more than religious fantasy. For the true assurance of hope, we not only need the scriptures, the truth of scriptures, we also need the application to the heart. This is what verse 32 is all about. The two disciples share a common experience. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? In the end, all the scholarship in the world will not convince a single human being of the truth laid out for all to see in the scriptures. God must open our eyes and apply it to the heart. Only then will we know it to be true. I still vividly remember the night that I came to know Jesus when I was only 20. It's a long time ago. I'd heard a sermon in church that night and as a result prayed a prayer asking God to accept me and help me to follow Jesus. And my life was never the same. From that moment on everything changed. It might not have been a burning as described here but it certainly was a dramatic change of heart that directed my life from then on. And as the years have gone on, I've become more and more convinced of the truth of the scriptures as truly the only hope of humankind. Now, not everybody comes to know Jesus that way, in that fashion. Many of you I know have grown up in Christian families and taken on the faith handed down from your parents, as my own children have. But whatever your experience, these two things will be true in some way for all Christian believers. If from a Christian home, at some stage, most likely in teenage years, God will also open your eyes to understand the basic message of the scriptures and he will then apply them to your heart. If as an adult you came to Christ, it may have been at one time, as it was for me, or over a longer period of time, God opened your eyes to understand the biblical message about who Jesus is and the meaning of his work on the cross and subsequent resurrection. And if you're here today still thinking about Jesus and the teaching of the scriptures, you might wonder whether God would open your eyes as well. And the answer to that, friends, can only come, can only be given in the promise of Jesus himself. 
in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Well-known words. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to whom the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Everyone who genuinely seeks the Lord finds him. But alas, I have known many for whom human pride, a belief in their own goodness and the wish to maintain control over their lives has prevented them from accepting the truth about Jesus and assurance and the assurance of such great hope it brings. And to my fellow brothers and sisters here this morning, let's rejoice and delight in the great assurance of hope, the hope ultimately of eternal life that has been given to each one of us. You know, if there's been one dominant theme in our society over the last year with COVID-19, it's not hard to guess, is it? It's a theme of hope. Hope of recovery from a virus that kills. Hope of the recovery of our business. Hope for the recovery of a job and employment. Hope to travel again or hope to even be able to come back home. Hope to return to a normal pre-pandemic state once again. But my brothers and sisters, we profess a hope far greater than that. In fact, we profess the greatest hope of any kind at all. The hope that began with Israel and through Israel's Messiah extends now to the whole world. That's why our Easter services this year looked at the theme of hope as well. How fitting it is at this time that we should close our series on the Gospel of Luke with the assurance of this wonderful hope that we possess through the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering and resurrected Messiah. Should we not pray with the Apostle Paul as he does in Colossians chapter 4 verse 3 that God might open a door wide at this time to share this message and hope with many the many people we meet, work with or share some activity together. Why don't we do that now? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for this wonderful story of the way you introduced Jesus to these two travellers. We thank you for your mercy and grace today 
in bringing Jesus into our world and paying the price that needed to be paid for our sins to be forgiven and our ability to come back to you and to inherit that great hope of eternal life. Lord, there are so many people around us that each of us know who do not know that hope. So we pray, open a door wide that we may have opportunity to share with them our story, our story of how we have come to know Jesus and that great hope. And we ask it in his name. Amen.